Well, good morning again, everyone. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the Sermon on the Mount. We are in chapter 6 this morning, and we're going to look at the first uh, 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so we can follow. you can follow along with us. Richard's already working on it. Celebrated Richard and Jan's 25th wedding anniversary yesterday. It was awesome. Went out to his house and he was just really cutting up the rug, him and Jan. It was just, it was awesome. I think we got it on video. So we're going to show it for you. No, we don't. <laughs> that would been good though. I should, should have thought about it. Matthew chapter 6, looking at the first 18 verses. The title of my study this morning is Inward Attitudes versus Outward Actions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in your word and to know, Lord, that you are present here and by your spirit, you're teaching our hearts what we need to hear, each one of us in our lives personally, but as a church corporately. We thank you, Lord, for just the power of your spirit working in and through our lives. We pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, they're not born again yet. Lord, would you especially touch their heart this morning? We thank you for just this privilege it is to worship you now through, through song, Lord, and now through the study of your word. Bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's been said, show me a man who's a good loser, and I'll show you a man who's playing golf with his boss. <laughs> Things aren't always what they seem. I read of someone, not me, someone who wrote this. I went to the store the other day. I was only in there for about five minutes. And when I came out, there was a cop writing a parking ticket. So I went up to him and I said, come on, buddy. How about giving me a break? He ignored me and continued writing the ticket. So I called him a pencil necked Nazi. I didn't do this. This is someone else. He glared at me and started writing another ticket for having bald tires. So I told him instead of slapping him when he was born, the doctor should have slapped his mother. He finished the second ticket and put it on the car with the first. Then he started writing a third ticket. This went on for about 20 minutes. The more I abused him, the more tickets he wrote. But I didn't really care. I was on my bike and it was parked around the corner. (laughs) It's horrible. (laughs) Things aren't always what they seem, are they? Now, most people evaluate their lives and the lives of other people on external appearances. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, that the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is not so concerned about our outside as He is with the inside, and the outside is only validated insofar as it is representative of what's going on on the inside. Thus, the title of our message this morning is Inward Attitudes versus Outward Actions. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. So if the, the inward attitude is right, then it will result in good outward actions. But if the inward attitude is wrong, then our outward actions will be wrong. And this is exactly what Jesus is showing us this morning concerning three outward actions that we must have the right inward motive. Jesus addresses three things in verses 1 through 18. We might call them the big three. Number one, giving. Number two, praying. And number three, 
fasting. And those are our three points this morning. Giving, praying, and fasting are all physical activities with spiritual benefits. You can give to God and pray to God and fast for God with right or wrong motives. Because again, God is not so concerned about the outside. He's looking at our hearts or what's on the inside. Now one more thing before we get to verse 1. I want you to take notice as we go through these big three, Jesus says when for each one of them. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, he begins with the assumption that it's a practice for each one of us who is a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not if, it's when you do these things. So number one, Jesus begins with giving. Now let me give you some background before we read verse one. When the Pharisees were about to help the needy, they would literally tie a trumpet to the left side of their waist. And as they would walk through the city, getting ready to give to the needy, they would pick up the trumpet with their left hand, and they would begin to blow it. Now, as the trumpet was in their left hand, it was an announcement they were about to give money to the needy with their right hand. So it said, dun dun da I'm about to start helping people with my right hand. Now listen to what Jesus says in verses 1 through 4. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now the idea from the Pharisees, their, their train of thought was, if I blow this trumpet outwardly, uh, it would draw the needy people to them. That, that was the reasoning behind what they did. But God looks at the condition of their heart and says, I know why you guys are making those trumpet calls. So that everyone could look around and say, oh, look who's giving. Oh, look how much money he's giving. Look at the way he's behaving with his money. Oh, we ought to praise this guy. Look how gracious he's being to others. Now, when it comes to, to giving as leader of the synagogue in those days, much like the pastor today, they're partially responsible for the attitudes when it comes to giving. In the same way, the pastor today can either foster this kind of mentality or stop this kind of mentality for the people's own good. See, if I as a pastor somehow single you out and promote your giving in some way and you get all the praise for it, then when you stand before the Lord in heaven waiting to get those rewards, the Lord will say, well, I'd love to give you a reward, but man, remember when you were here and you got all those pats on your back while you were on earth? It's for that same reason that, that we'll never do pledge Sundays here at the church. I'll never ask you to pledge a certain amount of money to a building fund or a new project. We'll never do capital campaigns. I believe that as we present a a need to the body of believers, as we simply ask people to pray, I believe the Lord will lay it on people's hearts to give. You don't have to pressure anybody. Because I'm sure that we have have seen enough of these televangelists that go on and on and on. I believe right now the Spirit of God is telling me there's 40 people. 40 is the number I keep seeing. And and I see another number, and it's it's $1,000 symbol. There's 40 people with $1,000 they're supposed to give. No, we've seen it all before. I hate it because they scold and harass and badger and guilt trip the congregation until someone sends them, I got a thousand dollars. Bless God. Hallelujah, brother. Praise God. And the so-called evangelist goes over and and runs back and personally takes it right out of the person's hand as, 
As far as God is concerned, that person that, that waved that thousand dollars will get no reward. He's already received his reward. He stood up in all in front of the people, and while the trumpets were playing, everyone was watching. He gave that thousand dollars and received there then the praise from men. Now, to me, it's extremely sad that there are people who encourage this kind of stuff. Because they're robbing them of the rightful blessings that God would have to give them and the, want to give them in the future. So I, I hold this, that those evangelists responsible for that, that kind of actions. They should know better. Now, if you've been coming to Calvary for a while, you know that we don't make a big deal over money here. We teach on it when we hit it in Scripture, but that's it. And I've said, said many times before that, that I make it a practice to not know who gives what here at Calvary Chapel. As a pastor, I have no idea what you give or if you give at all. I don't want to know. I could really care less because it's something that happens between you and the Lord. But here's what I, else I know. If I did know how much you give or, or how much you, you don't give, I know that in my flesh I might begin to treat you differently based on that information. So I don't care how mighty a man of God you are. Uh, if, if I find out that somebody's fellowship here quits giving, my mind goes, okay, why did they quit giving? Did I say something wrong? Did they do something wrong? I wonder what, what did I do? And immediately it affects the pulpit ministry. On the other side, if I know that you know, this person gave a whole lot of money, though, oh, they, they want counseling, I better fit them in, even on my study days, because, man, they're footing the bill, they're keeping the lights on, and I better talk to them. And I start treating you differently based on the fact that you're giving. And still, even at that, I don't know how much you make, so I don't know if you're being generous or not by the way that you give. Let me give you an example. If a person is making $6 million a year... <laughs> It's an exaggerated example. And he gives $10,000 to the church. Big deal. I mean, is he really giving? Now, don't get me wrong. We would take the $10,000, but I don't know of anyone who makes $6 million a year. But if someone knows you gave $10,000, how does the church treat that person? Oh, here comes a guy. Man, he gave $10,000. Oh, wow. But out of $6 million a year, that's just a drop in the bucket. But the problem is you have this, this poor little old lady in the corner of the church who makes $100 a week and she gives 30 of it and people say, oh, poor Mary, she, she doesn't give very much. We'll just let her sit in the back of the church. Let's treat her differently. Here's my point. It's much better to not know who gives what so that we treat each other with the love and respect that we all should show to each other. Why? Because it's a matter of the heart. Now let me say this. If you give to Calvary Chapel, you're not going to get your name in the bulletin you're not going to get on, on the back of a pew if we had pews. not going to get some gold plaque on the wall. We'll never devote anything to anybody. The foyer is not going to say this fine foyer is because of the generous donations by the Joneses. That's not going to happen here. Because it's between you and Jesus Christ. And that's the way it has to be. Because I want you to get your reward in heaven. I want you to be blessed when you stand before the Lord. Now with that said, I am totally aware of the weekly offerings and tithes that, that come into our church. And I would say for the size that we are, we have a very giving church. We, we, we are very blessed. You guys are the best. And as I see the giving increase, that excites me even more because I know that the Lord has laid it on your heart and you're being obedient to what the Lord has laid on your heart. I'm also encouraged because when the Lord, where the Lord guides, the Lord provides. And as we begin to start a new building project, I see God is using each one of us to, to further his kingdom, to expand his work without me having to say a word about money. And, and see, God gets all the glory. That's why when we pray for tithes and offerings, I pray, Lord, use these funds as you see fit to further your kingdom as you lead, as you guide. One more thing, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. 
to let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, but God loves a cheerful giver. You know that word for cheerful there is actually hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. Oh, this is great. I get to give. This is awesome. Oh, I, just, I mean, hilarious. You're, you're, you're thrilled. But you see, Jesus again gives us a warning. We need to be very careful how we give. And be careful as we look into the attitude by which we are doing it. And that goes along with praying. That goes along with fasting. As we will see, it goes along with your service. See, everything we do has two main thoughts. The motivation is two main thoughts. It's either because we love what we're doing or it's because we can get something out of it. Most everything stems from those two motivations. Love or greed. We go to work because we love our family and want to provide for them. Well, what about church? What about service? If you really love the Lord... You're going to serve the Lord out of love, even though you don't get paid, even though you don't get recognized. Or do you serve because you're concerned about what others think, and so you're kind of guilted into serving? See, Jesus is addressing giving as he addresses the way we pray, as he addresses fasting. Even in church business, we have to be very, very careful to recognize what motives are, our motives are for everything that we do. Now, does that mean that we can never give without it somehow being made known that God has blessed us in a great way? No. I mean, if God has blessed you in a special way and you want to give it to the church, there's nothing wrong with saying, Pastor, God has blessed me and I want to bless the church. I think of Barnabas. You know, when he sold his piece of property, laid it at the apostles' feet, and there was this attitude, and, and listen, it had nothing to do with giving to the needy. It had to do with giving to the church. He laid it at the apostles' feet, and, and there was this attitude that said, Hey, guys, you're not going to believe this. I sold my property for X amount of dollars. I'm so in love with Jesus. I just, I just want to give it to the fellowship. Now, Ananias and Sapphira saw that in Acts chapter 5, and they looked on it and said, whoa, look at, look at that. I mean, Barnabas gave, so why don't we give? And why don't we sell our property for a certain amount and tell the church we're giving it all to them, but really we'll keep a portion for ourselves. And, and when we pull off this scam, everyone will think that we really, really are spiritual. What happened to them? Well, they were the first ones to be slain in the spirit, literally. <laughs> they died instantly. Let me tell you something. You'll never have to tell anyone you are spiritual if you just live that way. Everyone will say, man, he's spiritual, she's spiritual. Because it's a matter of attitude. And that's what Jesus is talking about, our inward attitudes versus our outward actions. Listen, when we give, when we pray, when we worship, whatever we do, God is looking in our hearts. And he's asking the question, why are you doing what you're doing? Jesus here says, do your charitable deed in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. I love the fact, especially around Christmas time, when we're close to, close to Christmas, people will come up to me and say, listen, I have some, some extra money and, 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 and I, I want to give it to this person in the church. And I know they have a need and I know they were never asked for it. And, but I just, and I don't want them to know who gave it to them. So could you just give them to them? And here, here's $100 or $200. And I love being able to go up to that person and say, listen, someone gave me some money. I can't tell you who it is, but they want you to have this $100 or $200. Oh. Really? Oh, I just, oh, God is so good. God, I'm, I'm thrilled being that, that, that instrument to be used that way. Or think about this. Maybe you see a need and you go buy groceries for someone and you, 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 know, you, you, you ring the doorbell and run. You, know, you drop it on the front porch and, and get out of there real fast. And you got all these groceries. Oh, wow, God has provided for us. Blessing people like that. God says, you do stuff like that, man, your reward's going to be great in heaven. And when God says he'll do something for us, it's an exact promise that you can trust him. 
Now, this brings us to point number two, and that is prayer. I know Pastor Dennis touched on it all last week, but we're going we're gonna to touch on it again this morning. But let me begin by asking you this. If your cell phone recorded all of your prayers as minutes used, would you be using up all your minutes at the end of the month? Or would you have plenty of rollover minutes? Now, nights and weekends are free because you pray before you go to sleep at night and usually pray on the weekend, which is Sundays. But what about daytime minutes? Let me ask you this as well. How is your connection? Is it fuzzy? Is it staticky with a lot of outside noise going on? Or are you in a nice, quiet place where you can talk and you can hear? Well, now look at verse 5. We move from giving to prayer. Having the right prayer life inwardly produces the right prayers outwardly. Again, it begins with when you pray. The assumption is you are praying. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. I think many Christians don't spend a lot of time in prayer because they have the wrong attitude when it comes to prayer. A lot of people think, well, prayer is just something that grandma does all the time. Or they think praying, you know, the, the prayers they prayed when they were a child. You know, now I laid me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake you. What's up with praying like that? If I die, a little kid, you're scared of dying. No, that, I'd freaked out over that. But, but that's what many of us think of when we think of prayer. A quick prayer before bedtimes or meals. But also I think that for many of us who actually desire genuine prayer life, they have struggles because of the wrong attitudes about prayer. Some people think, well, in order to actually pray right, I have to go off by myself and get on my knees for four and a half hours and I need to close my eyes and fold my hands and, okay, now I'm ready. And they pull off this huge list of things that they need to pray about and then go through this list methodically. You know, being raised Roman Catholic night after night, for me it was vain repetitions, you know, praying the, the rosary, uh, our fathers, the Hail Marys, and, and fear that if I didn't, I would go to hell if I died in my sleep. But there are large denominations that, that, that encourage people to pray written prayers. But what is the Lord saying here? He says, our prayers need to come from our heart. And he says, if you're going to pray in public, make sure you're praying in private. Make sure that your prayer life in private is so strong that when you come before people and you begin to pray, it comes from the heart. It's not vain repetitions. Now, in Jesus' time, what he's speaking out against are the Pharisees who used to stand out in the public streets and they'd make these long prayers. And the thought was, the longer the prayer, the more spiritual they were. But we all know that, that the length of a prayer, it doesn't, you can't base your spirituality on the length of your, of your prayer. It's a condition of your heart. I think of Peter when he was ready to drown as he was walking on water. He didn't use some eloquent King James Version uh, prayer to call out to the Lord. Oh, thou Lord of heaven and earth, you know, thou King of kings, the Lord of lords, I beseech thee. I'm up to my neck and now it's water. And, and no. He said, Lord, help. Two word, Lord, help. He didn't even say in Jesus' name. Imagine that. And the Lord heard his prayer. See, God looks at the condition of our heart when you pray and when you give and when you fast. And look what Jesus says concerning those with the wrong heart in verse 8. He says, Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. I mean, isn't that great to know that our Father knows exactly what we need even before we ask? 
mean, put that in your heart this morning. If you take only one thing from this, this study this morning, know that your Father knows and your Father listens and He knows and He cares so much about what you have need of. But He still desires that we ask. One author puts, author puts it this way, prayer is talking with God and telling Him you love Him. It's conversing with God about all the things that are important in life, both large and small, and being assured that He is listening. In other words, it's a process of developing a relationship. How do you develop a relationship with God the same way you develop relationship with, with other people? You spend time together. And our relationship with God should be similar to that of the marriage relationship. The only difference is, unlike your spouse, God is perfect. And He loves you unconditionally. And He's absolutely trustworthy and forgives you for anything and everything you do wrong. If you ask. See, the good news is that God already has done the hard work in the relationship. All we have to do is be willing to communicate with Him. And we can learn to do that by having a change of attitude about prayer. I mean, think about the married couples you might know. Now, in some relationships... You see, they talk about everything. They communicate spontaneously. They don't hold anything back. They're open with each other. They don't try to manipulate each other. And I'm sure that that is all of our married relationships in this church this morning. Never a problem, always sunny skies and, and bright. But there are some couples, you know, that, that at times can get the wrong attitude. And, and, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You know, they get the silent treatment going on. You know, they have different versions of the silent treatment. You know, have the no talking whatsoever. Communication has been completely shut down. Not a single word. And for some, that can go on for months. Then you have the, we'll talk when spoken to and very brief answers. Yes, no, fine, fine. Then you have the third party communication. You go tell your mother if she wants to get groceries, I'm leaving in five minutes. Or you tell your father if he thinks I'm going with him and then he's lost his mind. Now, studies have shown that, that half of all divorces result in bad communications. And I think we can go through the same things with God. Since God didn't answer my last prayer the way I wanted Him to, then that's it, I'm done. And then God gets the silent treatment. Or He gets a one-word prayer. God, thanks for this food, amen. You know, or, 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 or we pray in one-word answers. But you see, prayer is communicating, communicating with and hearing from God. True prayer is when our will is aligned with the will of God and we pray accordingly. That's why Jesus in verse 9 says, In this manner, therefore, pray. I love this. He's showing us how we should pray. In this manner, he's not telling us to recite this prayer over and over again. The purpose of this great prayer is to use it as a guideline, as a format. This is how we should come to the Lord in prayer. He's showing us our need to pray, but he takes it a step further, shows us how to pray. Look now at verses 9 through 13. He says, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, this is not a substitute for what we pray, but rather a pattern for how we should pray. And we're given some key ingredients throughout this, 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 this prayer. We're given six things, if you're taking notes. Jesus begins with, number one, calling God our Father holy. It sets God in His proper place. Verse 9, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. See, every one of our prayers should begin by placing God in His position of authority and rulership over our lives. 
That word hallowed is an archaic English word meaning to make holy. Words like holy and saint and sanctification are, are translated from the same root word. Jesus is simply saying to acknowledge how wonderful our God is when you pray. God, our Father, you, you are holy. Yes, He's our Father, and we can come to Him at any time out of day, but we must never forget who we are talking to. In Him we have our very life, our very being. Honor Him by honoring His holiness. The second thing we see happening is in verse 10. Number two, our prayers need to be biblical. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. That means that I'm not going to be seeking something outside of God's will for my life. But I'll be seeking out His will for my life through His Word. See, I have to know His Word to say, Your will be done. But think of it this way. When you pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. You're asking God to establish His kingdom in your life. You're asking God to establish His kingdom in your heart, in your home, in your marriage, at your place at work. And understand, this isn't simply some wimpy prayer. It's asking God to occupy every corner of your life. I hallow your name. I recognize you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And whatever I'm praying for right now, God, I want it to be biblical. And I want it to be your will for me in my life. Not my will be done, but your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, he says. In heaven, God's will is being done constantly. On earth, we, we prayed into action. Number three, we're praying for physical needs. In verse 11, we, we give us this day, we read, give us this day our daily bread. So we've moved from worship, our Father who art in heaven, to adoration and expectancy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, to a place where we've abandoned all interest in ourselves and a supreme desire for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Having put the Lord first in our prayer, we now come to our petition. Listen, prayer is not only adoration, it's asking. But in asking, it's suggesting our absolute dependence upon God for everything. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, at first glance, that little phrase in this prayer seems really irrelevant for us living in modern America. Usually, we don't have a problem with our daily bread. Usually, our problem is we're on a diet, so God, help me this day to stay away from my daily bread. But in that day and age, when they lived day by day, hand to mouth, the idea was that I I never outgrow my dependence upon God to meet my needs. I like that. You know, he never taught us to pray, give us, you know, this month our monthly paycheck, but give us this day our daily bread. I daily acknowledge that the meals, the money I spend, the friends I have, the resources I enjoy, God has given that to me new every single day. And listen, God promises to take care of your needs. Whatever you need in life, God promises to care for your needs. Doesn't promise to care for our greeds, but our needs. Oh no, you're saying, oh Lord, but, but I need this new iPhone XS. I need it. It's, it's a real need. I can't survive without it. I know it's going to be tough, but you can, okay? But whatever you need, God will provide. I also notice in this area of Scripture that there is not one personal pronoun. Everything is dealing with mankind in a general aspect. He says, our Father. He doesn't say my Father. He says, us not, and we, not me and I. You see, when we list, lift up, or list rather, our physical needs, we have to acknowledge the physical needs of others. Praying for those around us that, that need a healing. Praying for those that need a, a touch from the Lord. Praying for those that are hurting. Which brings us to number four. We move from the physical into the spiritual. Verse 12 says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There was a question that was asked at a seminar featuring several prominent Christian theologians, but C.S. Lewis, the brilliant thinker and gifted author, was caught in traffic 
while the rest of the panel puzzled over this question for, for at least an hour or so. And the question was this, what is found in Christianity which is not found in any other religion? After about an hour, C.S. Lewis arrived and the question was posed to him. That simply replied, the forgiveness of sin. Listen, our past is buried in the sea of God's forgiveness and forgetfulness. He does not remember our sin anymore. And that's what makes Christianity absolutely unique. We are forgiven just as we should forgive others. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. This brings us to number five. We pray protection from the evil one. Verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil from the evil one. Now hopefully it's not, lead me not into temptation, I can find it on my own. But think about that. Do you pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation, and then as soon as you get home from church, you turn on the TV and watch something you shouldn't? Do you you pray, uh, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but as soon as service is over, you know, you head for hoo hot and uh, commit gluttony, you know, okay. I I may have done that in the past. I'm confessing my sins. How about, lead me not into temptation, but as soon as service is over, I can't wait to tell so-and-so what so-and-so said about so-and-so. You start gossiping. You see, if I am prepared not to lead myself into temptation, God will gently take my hand and lead me away from it as well. And he will deliver us from the evil one. When I see this as an example to pray, it makes me understand that the scope of how much our enemy wants to destroy us and how much we need to rely on our God for everything. Finally, number six, we pray God will be glorified. Again, verse 13 for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, not all of your Bibles may have, uh, translations may have verse 13. If you don't have a New King James Version, if you have a, an NIV or a, or a New Living Translation or New American Standard, they don't include that verse. It's because that, that, little, that last little part is not in all the ancient manuscripts. So some versions leave it out. Mine includes it. I prefer it. Uh, I like it. I prefer it for a reason, for two reasons. Number one, it doesn't contradict any major truth or doctrine of the Bible. And number two, it's perfectly fitting to end as we begin. See, I begin with God. I work my way into my needs, filtered through his will and his kingdom, asking him forgiveness. But I close with how I began in worship to him. In other words, this prayer begins and ends with praise. It really is a perfect pattern for prayer. Number one, you exalt the Lord. Number two, you say, Lord, my prayers will be biblical. Number three, I'm going to lift up my own physical needs and the needs of others. Number four, we move into spiritual from the physical. Number five, we pray protection from the evil one. And number six, we glorify God, glorify God once again. I love it. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, we get to verses 14 and 15. And Bible scholars absolutely go nuts on these two verses. Look at verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, these two verses have been a source of controversy between commentators for many, many years. As I said, Bible scholars have gone nuts on this particular verse. Because everyone cannot grasp the thought that from the heart of God that says, I'm not going to forgive you unless you forgive others. That might seem like a conditional forgiveness. In other words, if if I as a person who has embraced Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord will not forgive someone else, the forgiveness that has been extended is now made null and void and I'm no longer a Christian. That's not true. 
We have to understand that there are two aspects of forgiveness here we need to examine. When you give your life to Christ, He forgives you. The Bible says you are justified in Christ. That's a done deal. Paul writes this in Romans 4, verses 5 through 8. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who were declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord is cleared of sin. See, Jesus is not speaking of my relationship with God here. He's speaking about my fellowship with Him. He's saying if you harbor unforgiveness in your heart towards somebody, that's going to break off your fellowship with God, not your relationship with God. See, I have three sons. Chris, Joey, and Matt. Let's say I have one of my sons I have some kind of disagreement with. Oh, oh, it never happens. But let's say I do. But And we're not communicating. He does not cease to be my son just because we're not communicating. He's still my son. I'm grieved over the fact that we're not communicating, but I still love him. We will eventually get back together and communicate again, and we'll be back in fellowship. The relationship has never stopped. Only the fellowship was stopped. This is what this is saying. If you harbor unforgiveness, it hinders your fellowship with God. David put it this way in Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I hold on to sin, sin hinders my relationship with God and sin hinders my ability to have an effective prayer life by holding on to an unforgiving heart. That's why Jesus says, when you go and pray and you know that someone has an odd against you, go to that person, try to reconcile it, try to work it out. Don't harbor grudges against other people. That's what the scripture teaches. Now let me say this though, just a footnote. Jesus expects us as his followers to be forgiving people. And he's assuring us that when we are showing that we are forgiving people, it shows that we have been forgiven. Again, the inward versus the outward. Jesus taught in Luke 7, for those that have been forgiven much, love much. Now you may say, well, what about being forgiven towards a person who hurt my child? Or being forgiven towards someone who, who crippled my loved one in a drunk driving accident? Do I have to forgive them? What you need to do is pray. And ask God to give you the right heart towards that person. But see, God knows. And know that God knows. God knows how you feel. And as long as you are seeking Him with your whole heart and serving Him with your whole heart, that's what matters. Now, one more thing. The person who has wronged you in some horrible way, if they're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then you need to recognize that. And you need to recognize that this is the closest that they'll ever get to heaven. And apart from them coming to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, they will spend eternity in hell. But for you, on your side, this is the closest to hell that you'll ever come. What awaits us is eternity in heaven with our Savior and Lord. So, when you give, verses 1-4, through give in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. When you pray... Verses 5 through 15, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And finally, when you fast, that comes to our third point, fasting. And again, Jesus is assuming that this is something that we do in our lives. Look at verses 16 through 18. We'll close with these verses. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to, be, to men to be fasting. As surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So these Pharisees, 
the ones who blew the trumpet when they gave their gifts, the ones who prayed long prayers on the street corners for all to see, the ones who fasted every Monday and Thursday, you can always tell that they were fasting. They would take dust and they would throw it on their heads. They would take charcoal and rub it all over their face. And they would wear the sloppiest robes. And they would walk around with their shoulders slumped over. Oh, look how spiritual I am. I haven't eaten at all. Look, look, I'm doing this all for God. Praise God. And, and that mentality that affected the synagogue of the day is that people would look on and they would go, Oh, look at Phil Pharisee. Look how holy he looks. Look, man, how spiritual he is. He, he's, he's fasting. But on the inside, they're saying, well, I'm so hungry. I'm starving. I can't stand this practice of fasting. God says your fasting is horrible. It stinks. Look at your attitude. Now, what is fasting? Fasting is deliberately withholding a meal or a portion of food for the purpose of drawing close to the Lord. Now, there's the the Daniel fast that's out there. There's different kinds of fast, but it's deliberately withholding physical sustenance that I might focus upon spiritual reality. It's denying my flesh. I'm denying my appetite so that my appetites become my slave. I don't become their slave. That's what it is. It's not a holy diet. It's not a, a, a way to lose weight in Jesus' name. <laughs> Fasting is a way to deny the flesh that I might focus on spiritual things. And it's not easy. But when we have the right heart and right attitude, uh, we must have the right heart and the right attitude when we do it. Over in Zechariah chapter 7, verses 2 through 10, the people are coming before the Lord and they're asking the Lord, should we weep and fast as we've been doing or do you want us to do something different? The Lord sees their hearts and sees why they're weeping and fasting. And so listen to what he says in, in Zechariah 7, verses 4 through 10. Then the word of the Lord of the, host, of the host came to me saying, say to all the people of the land and to the priest, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you have not obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and the lowland were inhabited? The Lord says, when you were fasting, who are you really doing it for? He said, I would have rather you have obeyed my word than fast. He said, when you had these feasts, who are you really doing it for? When you pray, who are you really praying to when you give? What is your motive behind giving? See, as we close, it really comes back down to our hearts. It comes back down to the fact that, that what you do is between you and the Lord. When you, when you fast, when we fast, it's between you and the Lord. When we pray, it's between you and the Lord. When we give, it's between you and the Lord. And all three things, our Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Listen, we live in a culture where everything is judged on the outside. Jesus says what matters is on the inside. Issue is not what you're doing outwardly. It's what's going on in your heart. Because if your inward heart is right before God, then your outward actions will bring glory to God. Now let me say this. If your heart isn't right, I've got great news for you. Jesus is in the changing hearts. He's in the, in the business of changing lives. Maybe you've joined us for the first time or second time or third time and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You don't know what it means to experience His grace and forgiveness. Jesus said, I've come to give life and that more abundantly. We're told that, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, you can be made right with Christ through a changed heart. But only Jesus is the one that can change your heart. And if you give your heart to him by faith, he'll forgive you of your sins, cleanse you of all unrighteousness, fill you with his Holy Spirit, and give you a place in heaven. 
What, 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 a, what a great deal. So if you, if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning, as soon as we're done, as soon as service is over, the elders are up front, every service we do this, they'd love to pray with you and give you a Bible, let you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. To the rest of us, you know, if we failed in those areas, God wants to change our hearts. So give us a right heart in giving, right heart in praying, right heart in fasting. Let's pray. Father God, we do come before you, and we recognize you are a holy God, an awesome God. And we thank you for all of our blessings. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us insight into your word and how to apply these truths to our lives, Lord. And we do pray, Lord, that we would have the right heart, the right attitude when it comes to our giving. We're giving unto you, Lord. When it comes to our prayer, Lord, it's just between you and I, Lord, between you and us, Lord, that, 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 that we come before your throne, not to be seen of men, but to have our hearts right with you and fellowship with you. And when it comes by fasting, it's the same thing, Lord. Lord, we just want to draw near to you and, and denying the physical cravings, Lord, just to bring you glory and honor and praise and, and to draw close to you. Help us, Lord, to have uh, the right hearts in these, these three big things, Lord, today and that we might honor you and glorify you. And Lord, finally, I pray if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, that they would not wait a moment longer they will turn over their life to you, get the forgiveness of their sin that they need, and help them to walk with you. Thank you for this time, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand